Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. In Drumahare, County Leitrim, in the northwest of Ireland, the River Camogue runs through the small holding of Rosemary Kerrigan. You can hear the river. That's the river down there. Do you see just where that sign is? Just before it, there's a gate. I don't know if you can just see sort of a gate going through there. And where that tree is, sort of just past it, would have been a bridge which the railway would have come across and actually the little the stone cottage that you would have seen would have been a gatehouse there. And, you know, on a nice day, it is really beautiful here. Rosemary settled here in 1979 with her husband, Jack Kerrigan. Paralysed as a young man, Jack was one of the first wheelchair users to be visible in Irish society and a member of Ireland's first Paralympic team. Jack, you know, used to push... Well, downhill he wouldn't have to push so much. He'd go down to the bridge down there. And then I'll show you this. From here you'll be able to see. You, can, you, you get a very good view of the river. And in the summertime the river is often very low. And Jack used to go down and go in that gap and sit and watch the bird life. And I remember him telling me how he sat there for half an hour one day watching a stoat gathering stuff up for a nest or something. He was absolutely fascinated. And again, it's a fairly stiff push-up up the hill, to back up, come up, a way of trying to keep fit. It was here, in Drumahare, looking through his kitchen window at the mountain known as Benbow, that Jack typed his memoirs. He had grown up in the nearby seaside town of Bundorn, but his story begins in Scotland, where he was working as a carpenter in a hydroelectric scheme. The year was 1949. The month was June. I was 21. After work one hot day, Jack decides to dive into a local river. As he hits the water, the power of the current changes the course of his life. I was carried to the Bridge of Erne Hospital, unconscious, following a high dive from the bridge in the nearby village of Pitlochry. My first reaction was puzzlement. What happened? What exactly is wrong? Why am I lying like this? I try to turn over, but nothing happens. I try again. It seems I cannot get my legs into gear. A dreadful thought occurs. Perhaps they're not there. Gingerly, I put a hand down under the bedclothes, and I find that I have legs, all right. 
My hands can feel my legs, but my legs don't feel my hands. In my waking moments, I'm terribly uncomfortable. I find it hard to breathe. I ask a nurse for another of those pain-killing injections which seem to induce delicious unconsciousness and beautiful dreams. Um, now, his parents were notified and his father came over and his father was standing there and they kept on saying to him, well, he's going to die, you know, he will die. And Jack was lying there and he's told me, I was saying to myself, I blasted well, I'm not going to, I'm bloody well not going to die. And he was struggling with every single breath, but he couldn't speak. Um, and his father was so convinced by what they were saying that he'd be dead within about 24, 48 hours, he went to find a local undertaker, went in to the man's workshop, I suppose, and said, I want to order, I'd like to order a, a coffin. And the undertaker said to him, right, what size? So he said, well, I think he's about six foot, six foot one or two, I'm really not sure. And the man looked at him and said, is this man dead yet? And the father said, no. And the undertaker looked at him and said, Go away and only come back to me when he is dead. And that was the first bit of encouragement that man got. And he often used to talk about it later, that it was the undertaker who actually gave him hope. Inside Rosemary's cottage, she's making tea for her son Jonathan and his children, Callum and Isabel, who have come to visit and look at Jack's old photo album. Well, by the way, there's Benbo. While the sun, it, a few, little while ago, you wouldn't have been able to see it at all. And when we first came here, the trees were not nearly up as far as that, so it was far more impacting on us, you know? But, but if you'd been here a few hours ago, you wouldn't have seen it at all. So that's Benbo. Yes, my name is Paddy Kerrigan. I'm a brother of Jack. Uh, two years younger than Jack and four years younger than our sister. I'm now 85 and I live in a place called Old Adaminaby on Lake Eucumbe. Uh I came to Australia in 1953 and have been here ever since. Uh, now, my mother ran a boarding house when we were kids growing up. She used to keep about 30 or 40 people during the summer months. And Dad had a fairly uh, good job with the railway. He was with the railway from when he was 13 years of age. Uh, now, Bundorn had a very big beach. All along the beach, you had bathing boxes in those days. There were little boxes on wheels. Rogie Rock, where uh, all the young lads used to dive from, uh, that was over uh, oh, on the right-hand side of the beach as you look out, out to sea. Jack, he and I used to do a lot of uh, diving uh, from up the top of that, somersaults and swallows and uh, jackknives and all the rest. Now, that's taking off from Rogie, OK? This is part yeah. of Rogie. Somebody has managed to take a photograph from underneath up at him and he's like he's flying like a swallow. Then it's going down. Oh, there's that oh, one again. Do you see it? Yeah. There's Rogie. And they're curling up to go into it, into the water. Uh, Jack was a bit of a ladies' man. As I say, he was uh, 
he looked, you know, about 25 when he was only 14, and uh, he had no problems at the balls and the dances escort, escorting the, the best-looking girl there home. Uh, we had a problem in that you'd take some girl out and you told her you were an engineer or some rubbish like that, and then the next day you might be walking up the street. I was serving my apprenticeship, as Jack did too, as a carpenter and joiner, and you'd be walking up the street carrying a bag of cement on sh one shoulder and a lather on the other, and you'd see this girl that you'd been, well, you know, blindsiding at the, at the ball the night before, telling her you were all sorts of a, a professional person. You come up. So you'd pull your cap down over your eyes and put the bag of cement on her side and try and get past. Is it conceivable that medicine, with all its wonder drugs, its new techniques of transplant surgery, has no cure for this? Is this a sort of dump for incurables? Maybe they have an incinerator around the back for the hopeless cases. The staff here are nice enough people, but they want to teach me how to manage without the use of my legs. They don't seem to realise that I'm here to be cured and to get back to normality. If I can't be cured, then it's goodbye to job. Girlfriend, hobbies, social life, everything worth doing, and back to my mother in a pram. Now, I remember when the news first came and Dad went over and sent back the news. There was no hope, apparently, at that time. They thought Jack would only last a short time. And uh, Dad came home, and then the nuns, we lived right beside the convent, they came to the house anyway and said, right, oh, well, we'll all kneel down now and we'll say prayers for the repose of Jack's soul so that he goes to heaven and blah, blah, blah. Well, Dad jumped up and said, look, for God's sake, you know, get out of the house altogether, go back down to the convent, say your prayers down there. We're praying that he's going to survive. Well, he was hurt when he was 21. He was in hospital for 14 months, and I suppose he was only 22 or so when he came home. And in those days, there were no wheelchairs lying about, so it was a matter of carrying him from the hospital out into the waiting car, then take him home and then carry him into our home. I had already set up a bed and hooks in the ceiling and all the rest so my mother could get him in and out of bed. And first thing he said, when Mam and Dad go off to the church this evening, he said, you and I are going to do something. I said, fair enough. And uh, he said, right. He said, I've been thinking, I don't think I'm paralyzed. He said, I think, you know, my legs move and, you know, I can see them jumping at times. I think we should do something about this. He said, if you get a piece of steel out the back and some wires and we'll hook me up to the 240-volt power. So I said, OK. So I went off and got the wires and plugged them into the through the power point and hooked Jack up with a bar in his hand holding on to that and uh, his feet on this piece of railway line with the other wire hooked onto that. So... Jack gave me the, you know, when I say go, switch her on. So I switched her on. Well, Jack jumped all over the place. His feet went over and back on this rail. And he was 
trembling, shaking with this 240 volt going through him. So every now and then he'd say, stop, you know. I say, can you walk yet? <laughs> no, he said, no, bl- no bloody fear. He's another go. He said, I'll give him. So we kept at this for quite a while anyway, but it didn't, uh, it didn't work. So he was quite convinced then, I think only then, uh, that he was paralyzed and <laughs> that we couldn't fix it anyway. But uh, some of the things you do, you know, for to... Uh, uh, for to help somebody that's really, I suppose, at their wit's end. Had I been in a position to dictate, I think I would have shied away from people and spent my time reading and listening to the radio, only admitting a few very special friends. The fact that I was incontinent overwhelmed me with embarrassment and uh, I was too ashamed to associate with polite society. I was also a sitting duck for the religious zealots, which was heavy going for me. I often quarrelled with my family about their show-him-to-everybody attitude, but they pressed on with my social rehabilitation. And in no time, my bedroom had become a gambling casino, with poker predominating and tea and buns about ten o'clock every night. Yeah, well, I think it was uh, possibly Christmas time. And I was uh, working in Dublin at the time, and I bought a wheelchair for Jack. Uh, I think it cost me 17 pounds. So uh, brought that back down with me the next time I went home. My wheelchair was one of those with a sliding footboard and the big solid propelling wheels in front. It was only partially collapsible, but was extremely strong. To be able to move around the house, and to eat a meal at the table was a joy. And Paddy, his brother, bought him that chair. When he came home, he had no wheelchair. Is is Paddy the one that's in Australia? Yeah. But it's this old-fashioned wheelchair. You know, they have the wooden wooden handles and little wheels at the back. Now, there's a photograph further Mm -hmm. on of Paddy pushing him. This is all in Bandoran. Yeah. I come to terms with the varying public attitudes I encounter as I'm out and about in Bundorn. I learn not to be offended by people who are so embarrassed by my changed circumstances that they cross the road rather than speak to me. I learn to graciously accept the effusive condolences of those who wish to sympathise with me. I am grateful for the many friends who treat me exactly as before. The first dance I ever attended in a wheelchair was entirely against my own will. I had been very fond of ballroom dancing, and I thought it would be sad for me and embarrassing for the girls I used to dance with if I were to appear like a skeleton at a feast. So ran my argument. But my friend, Mickey McAleer, had made up his mind I was going. He tilted my chair up onto its caster so that I couldn't hold it. Mickey's argument was that if I was going to die young, I might as well see what I was missing. I enjoyed that night immensely. I met so many people I hadn't seen in a long while, and the warmth of their greetings made it obvious that my worries about the dance had been unfounded. To cap it all, 
the proprietor of the dance hall took us aside afterwards and he said that he had been amazed that the girl in the box office had taken our money. From then on, he said, neither myself nor my companion should ever pay going into his ballroom. I had to listen to Mickey crowing all the way home and from then on, I was as often in the ballroom to suit my impecunious friend as I was to suit my own romantic adventures. In September 1960, the Irish team prepared to leave for the first Paralympic Games in Rome. Jack Kerrigan and his two good friends, Leo Close and Oliver Murphy, were on the team. It was for us, so it was mighty. And then we were all put on board. I think we were carried on individually onto the plane. And, and all these wheelchairs were going. They, they, had, um, uh, they had somebody with each one. They had uniforms and everything. They were all dressed for the games. The Irish team was one of 23 international teams making their way to Rome, where the Italian hosts were preparing for this unprecedented gathering of wheelchair users. The army played a big part in helping at, at those games. Coming into the Olympic village, and we were sitting on the bus looking at this accommodation, which was up on stilts. There was no ground floor. And we said, my God, how, and there was no lift. How, how, how are we going to manage here? So what they did was to put plywood on these steps. And there was no way you could, man you could manage them yourself. But there was army personnel on duty the whole time, and they pushed you up. So it wasn't what they call accessible in any way. Despite the inaccessibility of the venue, it was a revelation to compete as equals with so many other disabled athletes. Lone himself was in um, table tennis and javelin and discus and the shot put, I think. Whereas Jack would be in the swimming and all that and Oliver and archery, of course, was a great um, sport. I think the fun was part of it. Apparently they were, they were supplied with a lunch pack every day, wherever they went to the field events, OK? But the lunch pack, being Italy, always included vino. But Oliver didn't drink, and quite a few of them said they wouldn't drink. So Jack said, well, I can drink. I'll drink. I won't do any harm to me. But so one day, anyway, Jack was there, and he was going to do what they call dartery in the afternoon. No, it's playing darts with the bow and arrow. So... Whatever number was didn't drink the being on Jackson, so I drank it's just only harmless stuff. But it wasn't so hard. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. <laughs> so I just, I can see, see them. Uh, they, they are, one of these fellas going around, uh, Italians, but it'll say in front of them. And the little cups of black coffee, strong coffee. I don't know how many you drank, steady yourself up. <laughs> and I remember I found um, a telegram there lately, sent to my, my parents from Lone saying, eh, one, two goals, just lovely, just signed Lone, you know, the old telegrams, they were just lovely. The two goals had been won by Joan Horn in archery and swimming. Jack had tied for third place in the men's breaststroke. But what the team had gained was more than medals. We were the centre of attraction. We were the centre. We were, absolutely. The people in the wheelchairs was about 500 there from the five continents. The first time this ever happened in the world ever before. And we were the centre, so we really were elevated. We were elevated. And I've always said, I've said this so often, that when I came back from Rome, I was away up here. And I never came down. I never came down. It's a great feeling of achievement. And, and, and confidence, confidence goes into you, you know. What the hell, you're on a wheelchair, that doesn't really matter. Forget about the things you can't do. There's so many things you can do that you really can do. But it was after that that um, they decided, Jack, Leo and Oliver, the three of them, um, that they would be far better off to form an association themselves just for wheelchair users. At 8pm on the evening of November 10th, 1960, ten of us gathered around a table in the pillar room of the Matter Hospital in Dublin. A little after 9pm, when everyone had said their piece, Father Leo called for formal proposals. I proposed, and Oliver Murphy seconded, that an organisation be formed to help Irish people who were confined to wheelchairs. I was appointed first secretary of this new organisation and I recorded the minutes of the meeting in a little red memo book. To start our fund, a subscription of ten shillings each was put into the kitty in the centre of the table and so ended the first meeting of the Irish Wheelchair Association. We were real pioneers. We hadn't a clue what we were doing or what was going to happen. We just kept going. 
See, when we started first, one of the things was very big at that time. The people felt very self-conscious. We ran in Dublin. They ran weekly socials, and they organised every week transport, no drivers, entertainment, and they'd have a whale of a time once a week to go and to be dancing and music and all that. But they were designed to get people to come out. While Jack was volunteering for the Irish Wheelchair Association, he became ill and was admitted to the newly formed National Rehabilitation Hospital in Dunleary. While recovering there, he met a young English occupational therapist called Rosemary Burgess. And uh, there was this guy called Jimmy Garrigan. Quite frequently, Jimmy would say to me, "Uh, Good morning, Miss Burgess. Have you met Jack Kerrigan yet? And I'd say, No, I haven't. And um, he would be going on and on about this man, Jack Kerrigan. And after about four or five days, a referral card arrived down for occupational therapy for Jack Kerrigan. So I went up to the ward at the usual time and um, went over to him and said, um, good morning. I can't actually put it into words. I think one of the things about Jack were his eyes. He had um, greeny-brown eyes, very unusual colour, but very, very... And, and, and eyes that were very... Very vocal, if you like. I mean, you could see when he was um, teasing you. You know, the glimmer, the humorous, um, courteous, lovely courteous manner. One of the things that Jack always did, he had time for everybody. He was just a very unique person. Rosemary and Jack began to discreetly see each other outside of hospital hours. Their feelings quickly grew, but they were both cautious. He'd always maintained he'd never get married. I had always maintained I'd never get married. Seeing what had happened in my family, no way. And Jack said he would never, he'd decided a long time ago he would not marry because he couldn't ask any girl to marry him. He couldn't earn his living. He was on disability. He didn't, in those days, was, I don't know how little it was, but it wasn't much or anything. So I think what happened is that two people who were absolutely convinced that they would never get married relaxed and got to meet each other initially as a, to be a platonic relationship, which developed into a, a huge warmth for each other, if you like. I don't know whether I was the wiser one or not, but I decided I really had to sort myself out and see, did I want to stay with a man? Did I actually, was I changing my mind about getting married? So without saying anything to Jack, I decided I'd try and go and work somewhere else for a while. Rosemary took a post at a hospital in Heidelberg, Germany. In her absence, Jack got a job working with other wheelchair users and in the evenings he focused on training for the next Paralympic Games. He wrote to Rosemary each week. To Railway Terrace, Drogheda, 14th of June 1964. Dearest Rosemary, here I am again tonight with pen in hand and heart full. I'm very tired and sleepy, so forgive me if this letter is rather a mess. I stayed late this evening at the Jacob's Pool, as I have done several nights this week. I have a graph made out and pinned on the back of the workshop door. A light pencil line shows the progress that must be achieved to qualify for the Tokyo Games. After every swim, I put a dot in the appropriate square, and so far not only am I holding my own against the pencil line, I'm beating it all the way. However, that's not what I wanted to talk to you about at all. I got your letter this morning, 
thanking me for the roses, and I felt an awful clot as in my haste to post my last letter. I hadn't thanked you for the cigars. Thank you, darling, they're lovely. I've only smoked one as yet. I had also forgotten to answer your very important question, and that is to say that it would be my eventual ambition, when I make the money, to build our own house in the country with electricity, piped water, or perhaps its own well, two or three acres of land, a dog, a horse, and maybe even children. In talking of the future, I know I use your name without restraint, but, sweetheart, don't think I expect you to marry me, though, of course, I want you to marry me very much indeed. And I may as well tell you the rest. Father Leo is leaving for his post in New Zealand on the 5th of October, and I hope he'll marry us before he leaves. I know it's crazy, but think about it for a week before you say anything. My eyes are closing, so I'll turn over and go to sleep thinking of you. I dreamed last night that you were coming down the steps out of the plane at Dublin Airport, and I was waiting and kissed you and hugged you lightly. Just a public preliminary. Maybe I'll do the same tonight. Good night, darling. Jack. Rosemary returned from Germany, and despite the disapproval of many in society, she accepted Jack's proposal. To describe Rosemary, well, I suppose Rosemary was one of the most competent people you could ever wish to meet, and uh, Jack was so lucky for to meet Rosemary, and, uh, you know, that they formed a, a relationship that lasted for all those years. I had been told by long and happily married people that from the surmounting of the greatest problems together comes the greatest happiness. I believed this and looked forward to our future not so much as a bed of roses but as an uphill climb in which the view from each stage would make the effort of getting there well worthwhile. With Rosemary by his side, Jack began to achieve the hopes and dreams he had set out in his letter. He went on to represent Ireland at two further Paralympic Games and he and Rosemary also became parents. In 1970 and 72 we adopted our two boys, Jonathan and Paul. Both of us became part-time employees, enabling us to rear our lads with the very minimum use of babysitters. Uh, Jack would have been a fantastic father. He'd help look after his sister's young children. I can remember him playing with, with, with Jonathan. Jack would be in bed, maybe, and I'd give him uh, Jonathan to look after. I'd be out in the kitchen and I'd hear this little child chuckling away and Jack would be lying there and he'd have him up here like this and bring him down, and, you know. Jack was so strong he could try, push up his child up in the air and the child would bring him back down again and play with him. In 1976, Jack, Rosemary and their two small boys travelled to Australia to visit Paddy. While there, Jack got news that his old friend Leo, who was now living in New Zealand, was unwell. Um, Jack had to go, was visiting Australia. I think he had a brother in Australia. And he was over visiting his brother and he decided he would like to come to see Lone. So it was a wonderful, a wonderful um, uh, thrill for both of them. I, I wasn't there for the actual meeting, but it must have been a very um, warm meeting and very uh, hard on both of them. 
there was Jack. He he had um, I suppose Lone had had got him out of the bed. Sorry, for coming. And um, Lone was there in the bed himself, and he was dying. So um, it was very hard. Now Jack had to leave him before he died, and that was very hard too, you know, um, because they knew they would never see each other again, you know. Leo's death caused Jack to reflect on his own life, and soon after he and Rosemary returned to Dublin, Jack made a decision. And I can remember going home one day and him saying that he'd been to the bank and uh, talked to the manager. He said, yes, he says we could sell this house, and I forget what he suggested, and he said, and I said, Sell the house," he said. "Yeah, I want to go back up to um, to the northwest, and he really, he really did want to go. And this was going to be a total change, and we were going to, you know. But anyways, I agreed. <laughs> I retired in 1978, and in 1979 we moved to Drumahair in County Leitrim, where we embarked on our next project to build a bungalow designed by me and to run a ten-acre small holding. I am now part house-husband, as the jargon goes, and part smallholder. In many ways, we were very lucky to get this site, because it was what Jack actually has specified a few years, uh, yeah, a few years beforehand to a local auctioneer. You know, Jack always had this hankering to come back up here, and he said, well, listen, if you can find a place on a hill with a river nearby... And a good view. So we are here, we have a river going through our land, and we have a lovely view of the mountains. Jack loved being back in the northwest, and he gradually added geese, ponies, and goats to the small holding. He encouraged his old friend Oliver to visit. Oliver was by now married to Joan. When they moved to Leitrim, too, myself and Oliver went on a visit, and um, Rosemary was working, and he was looking after the the two, the two lads and oh god he was so terrific and at that time they just had a mobile home and because they were building the house but they were a very happy couple oh very really he, he taught the world of her and she of him one of the things I remember now too about one of the days we were up with Jack and the way he could milk the goats and what it was he had the field and he had a little hut that he could go into and the goat could come in out of the field and come up on a platform in front of where Jack was sitting, he'd milk the goat, bucket, take the bucket out, and let the goat out the other side, back into the field, and the next goat would come in, and Jack had milked the goat. That's true, and he made all that himself. Jack immersed himself in the rural way of life, becoming passionately involved in campaigns to protect his beloved Leitrim landscape. I, I, I can see the day, I don't know the date or anything, OK. But I can remember Jack was busy, I don't know what he was doing, perhaps washing up, and I must have been doing something here beside him. And we were just dis- discussing, we started to talk about, um, somebody must have died or something. And um, I think I was the first person to say, well, listen, if I die before you, I hope you, I hope you meet somebody. And he said the same. Somehow that he said he didn't want to be buried. I said, what do you mean you don't want to be buried? said, I don't want ever to be put in the ground. I can't bear the thought of the worms eating me. Which I think is actually very funny. I said, well, what do you want? He said, no, I want to be cremated. So I said, right, and where do you want the ashes to go then? And he said, up on Benbow. And that's Benbow over there. Jack continued to work tirelessly for the Irish Wheelchair Association and his door was always open to young people who were coming to terms with life in a wheelchair. 
he wrote his memoirs, thinking his story might give them hope. When I look back over the past 40 years, it's hard to say exactly when my rehabilitation ended and normal living took over. The most important achievements of my life have been ordinary things, like having a family, contributing to society, earning the respect of my fellow man. I would not have considered these things possible in my early days of hospitalisation, and nor did anyone else. Oh dear. The tea things cleared away. Rosemary, Jonathan, Callum and Isabel prepared to drive up the mountains towards Benbow, to the place where Jack's ashes were scattered after his death in 1994, at the age of 65. I phoned him, oh, just the day prior to his passing away. He was in a lot of pain and had decided not to continue on dialysis. He said, I can't complain. I've loved and enjoyed a very full and happy life, thanks to Rosemary, Jonathan, Paul, and a lot of very good supportive friends. There's a view of lakes outside Drummerhead. Day, it's magical. You can see Sligo Hills, the Donegal Hills, you can see everywhere. So that's one of the reasons why he would have liked it so much. This is really a magic place. Yeats talked about his Celtic twilight where you are halfway between reality and the sort of other world, and that's really part of all that's here. We would have got out and got over and not, well, I'm not saying this is 100% the actual spot, but you see this piece of grass here, it's ver this, a little promontory there. We would have been there. And I can see Jonathan writing Jack with the ashes in my mind's eye. Hmm. There's the wee town of Malahalta down there, you see. Can you not see why he would have loved it? Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.